I'm Duncan Hollis of Temple Law School, and this is the second of five lectures in a mini-series on treaties and international law. In my first lecture, I offered an introduction to treaties in terms of history, function, and sources. I briefly explained the historical bases for treaties having binding force, a force that today depends on the concept of pacta sunt servanda. I used a hypothetical to interrogate the various functional reasons states form treaties uh, to restrict their sovereignty and to facilitate their behavior both internally and externally. We also explored the more doctrinal question of when and how we might think about treaties as sources of generally applicable rules of law as opposed to more contractual incidences of obligation. In this lecture, we turn to the question of what a treaty is and assess its efficacy in light of rising competitors in modern law and practice. To do so, let's begin with the classic Permanent Court of International Justice case uh, concerning Eastern Greenland between Norway and Denmark. It's worth a quick recitation of the relevant facts. On July 14, 1919, the Danish and Norwegian foreign ministers were discussing the settlement of Spitsbergen in which Norway wanted its sovereignty recognized. The Danish foreign minister indicated that it had no opposition to Norway settling the question in favor of its sovereignty. At the same meeting, the Danish government, though, expressed their interest in statements from Norway that Norway had no objection to Dan Denmark extending sovereignty over Greenland. Three days later, on July 22, 1919, Norway's foreign minister, Illen, declared to the Danish foreign minister that the Norwegian government would not make any difficulties in the settlement of the Eastern Greenland question. Twelve years passed without many incidents. But on July 10, 1931, Norway declared that it was prepared to occupy certain territory in Eastern Greenland, triggering Danish objections and a trip for both states to the PCIJ. There, the court concluded that Norway was obligated to refrain from occupying parts of Greenland as it had originally proposed it would when Norway made a commitment to Denmark not to interfere with Danish sovereignty in Greenland. But why? I think it seemed clear to the Permanent Court of International Justice that the Spitsbergen and Greenland issues were interdependent and that Minister Illen's own notes reflected Norway's recognition of that fact. The PCIJ says even if the issues were not interdependent, Denmark asked for a promise and received a reply that comported with its request. Thus, the court found it beyond all dispute that a reply of this nature, given by a foreign minister on behalf of his government, was binding on the country to which the minister belonged. So, Illen's declaration, what was it? Was it an early example of a unilateral declaration, as some do claim? although that concept would not gain any real prominence for another half century uh, till it appeared in the nuclear test case. I think the reciprocal nature of the commitments belies that sort of labeling, though. And so the better answer, I submit, is that Illen's declaration represented a treaty, albeit an unwritten one. We see in this case interdependent declarations given in a formal setting with agents making representations and indicating an intent to bind each other through these promises. Denmark had performed its part of the bargain by not interfering in questions of sovereignty over Spitsbergen for more than a decade. Moreover, the fact that the promise came from Norway's foreign minister mattered. 
As a direct agent of the chief of state, the foreign minister was deemed to have authority to make binding agreements on behalf of their state. And it didn't really matter either that uh, Minister Illen may have had no authority under Norwegian constitutional law to make binding agreements, uh, as it were. As Judge Anzalotti noted in his famous dissent to the case, that point was of no concern to the Danish government. It was Minister Illen's duty not to reply until he had obtained whatever authority he needed to make such a commitment on the international plane. So in the end, I think the Eastern Greenland case raised as many questions as it resolved. At the broadest level, it begs the question of what constitutes a treaty exactly. Is it the presence of a text that makes a treaty? Or is it some intersubjective meeting of the minds between the parties that is the true treaty, meaning a text isn't really necessary? And if oral statements are binding depending on the setting, how formal must this setting be? If a foreign minister can bind the state, what about a deputy foreign minister? It was these sorts of questions and the rapid rise in treaty making that followed the Second World War that led the United Nations International Law Commission to take up the task of codifying the law of treaties. The project spanned three decades, with four of the most prominent British international lawyers taking turns in the role of rapporteur. J.L. Brierley, Hirsch Lauterpacht, Gerald Fitzmaurice, and most prominently, Humphrey Waldock, who brought the project across the finish line in 1966. The International Law Commission offered 75 draft articles on the law of treaties with accompanying commentary. Those articles were picked up by states in two conferences held in Vienna, culminating in the 1969 adoption of the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties. And at this point, I'd like to emphasize that in a mini-series such as this, I'm limited in coverage. And so my historical surveys in both my first and the second lecture are consciously abbreviated. I've chosen to leave out much about the history of treaty making after it evolved from its divine law origins uh, and the ways the original more bilateral orientation of treaties shifted to a pattern of widespread plurilateral and multilateral agreements across the 19th century. Nor will I say much about the International Law Commission and its rapporteur's treatment of the law of treaties uh, and or the travaux preparatoire, that is the legislative history of the 1969 VCLT. These are, make no mistake, key resources. They bear attention in most serious questions of interpreting or applying the law of treaties. I'd commend to you, for example, Santiago Villapando's separate lecture on the VCLT, uh, which is on this site for more details on this topic. As for the VCLT, it entered into force on January 27, 1980, and as of December 2021, it has 116 states parties. Its influence, however, reaches to all states. States that have not joined, like my own state, the United States, have long recognized the codification of customary international law that the VCLT represents in most, but not all, of its provisions. If you're wondering where the exceptions are, I direct your attention to part four of the VCLT, which attempted rather unsuccessfully to lay out precise procedures for making claims of issues of validity, breach, termination, and treaty withdrawal. Nonetheless, uh, at the time of the VCLT's adoption, it was also clear that several of its provisions, some of its most notable, including such as those on use cogens, were undoubtedly progressive in character uh, and not codificatory. But many of these, unlike Part 4 of the VCLT, have since become recognized as such 
and such, the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties has become the reference point for modern states on treaty law and practice today. And so, if we want to know what a treaty is, the VCLT is a great place to start. VCLT Article 2, 1a, paragraph 1, subparagraph a, offers a concise definition. A treaty is, quote, an international agreement concluded between states in a written form and governed by international law, whether embodied in a single instrument or in two or more related instruments, and whatever its particular designation. On closer inspection, this definition suggests a starter menu, if you will, listing five ingredients that can be combined to make a treaty. An international agreement that is concluded between states in writing and governed by international law. As we'll, as we'll see, this is not an exhaustive list. The law has evolved to expand on the VCLT's ingredients, but it's still, I think, our best starting point. First up, there needs to be an international agreement. And though I should be candid here and acknowledge that neither the VCLT negotiators nor the International Law Commission gave this element much thought, they left the term mostly undefined. Still, there are at least two core elements to use to identify an agreement, mutuality and commitment. In terms of mutuality, as the first ILC rapporteur for the Law of Treaties, uh, J.L. Brierley noted, by defining treaties as agreements, we exclude unilateral declarations, which, as I noted at the outset in discussing the Eastern Greenland case, um, and which international law has since come to treat as a separate source of law and international legal obligation. I'm not going to deal with unilateral declarations much further, except to direct those of you interested in the topic to the ICJ's treatment in the nuclear test case, as well as the International Law Commission's 2006 efforts to devise guidelines on the identification and effects of unilateral declarations in international law. In any case, unilateral declarations are made by and bind a single actor via declaration that's publicly made and manifesting the will to be bound. Agreements, in contrast, don't arise sua sponte from a single actor, but are the product of a mutual interchange or communication. As Briarly explained, the essence of the treaty lies not in the instrument or the document recording it, but in the consensus brought into existence by the act of its formal conclusion. In other words, as part of mutuality, there needs to be a meeting of the minds, or in Latin, consensus ad idem. Now, beyond mutuality, our consensus ad idem must also incorporate some commitment. By commitment, I mean the idea that an agreement will encompass shared expectations of future behavior. It's not enough for an agreement's participants to explain their respective positions or even list some agreed view of the world. Commitments elaborate how participants will change their behavior from the status quo or continue existing behavior. So, thus, in finding an agreement in the Bahrain v. Qatar case, the International Court of Justice emphasized that the agreed minutes under review were, quote, not a simple record of a meeting. They do not merely give an account of discussion and summarize points of agreement and disagreement. They enumerate the commitments to which the parties have consented. Now, of course, the precision of any commitment can vary greatly. Some may encompass clear rules that participants are able to fully anticipate and implement and understand ex ante, 
while others are standards, where compliance requires an ex-post contextual analysis, looking at all the circumstances. Nor should the mutuality of commitments be confused with reciprocity. Agreements can be one-sided. They do not require an exchange of commitments or what the common law calls consideration. A single commitment by one participant to another participant or participants can suffice to establish an agreement for treaty purposes. For a treaty to exist, moreover, we need to see not just an agreement, but an international agreement. And that qualifier highlights a key point. All treaties are agreements, but not all agreements are treaties. That said, it's not entirely clear what else work, what other work the qualifier international does. It has not, for example, been employed to limit the subject matter of treaty making to quote unquote international topics. Uh, it might be read, I guess, to implicitly endorse limiting treaty making to those who have international legal personality, or maybe to signal the international legal basis for the obligations that result. Now, Whatever that scope of the international agreement is, it's not the only requirement. To have a treaty, that international agreement must also be concluded. That's our second ingredient. Both the VCLT and state practice define conclusion as the point at which parties adopt the treaty text or when it's opened for signature. Thus, a treaty can exist even if it's not entered into force or even if it never does. As we'll see in my third lecture, conclusion and entry into force are not synonymous. Third, the VCLT defines a treaty as an agreement between states. Now, a treaty can be bilateral between two states. It can be multilateral, incorporating multiple state parties. Now, in practice, a treaty um, uh, may have a state conclude uh, it in its own name, um, or uh, we call this an interstate agreement, or via one of its institutions. It, a treaty might be concluded by the government of the state a government-to-government -government agreement, uh, a national ministry, like that is a ministry-to-ministry -ministry or agency-to-agency -agency agreement, or even via subnational territorial units, a provincial-to-provincial, province-to-province agreement. That said, looking at modern uh, treaty law and practice, it would, make, it would be a mistake to assume that only states or these variations thereon can conclude treaties. VCLT Article 3 makes clear that its treaty definition does not preclude giving legal force to agreements concluded by states with other subjects of international law or among those other subjects. And today, clearly, those other subjects of international law include most notably international organizations or internet intergovernmental organizations, our IOs, as I like to call them for short. And IOs can clearly conclude treaties, a fact confirmed by a successor to the 1969 VCLT when in 1986, states negotiated and concluded the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties Between States and International Organizations, or between international organizations. In addition to IOs, other subjects of international law may have sufficient legal personality to conclude treaties regarding uh, certain subjects. Um, insurgent groups, for example, may be able to conclude treaties regarding the conduct of hostilities. I'll talk more about who can make treaties in the scope of these capacities in my next lecture. But beyond having an international agreement that's concluded between states or these other subjects of international law, for a treaty to exist under the VCLT, it must be recorded in writing. 
The VCLT doesn't impose any requirements of form this writing must take. There's no requirement that a treaty be published, nor any requirement that it be signed. And although the writing could be recorded traditionally via typewriting and printing, um, modern communication methods, email, texts, social media accounts, Twitter, may provide additional mechanisms for recording treaties uh, in the future. By requiring a written text, though, the VCLT does exclude oral agreements from its ambit. Looking to the ICL, uh, the International Law Commission, uh, that is, and the VCLT's own travaux prepatoire, however, it's clear that this exclusion was done for practical, not theoretical, reasons. Like treaties with non-state actors, VCLT Article 3 makes clear that it does not purport to restrict states from entering into oral treaties. And today, many, but not all, states understand customary international law outside the VCLT to allow for oral treaty making. That said, and in any case, the essential criterion, the essential element in our recipe for a treaty is that the international agreement be governed by international law. The challenge lies in understanding what does that mean precisely. It, for starters, it might be read more as a consequence of treaty making than as a constituent element of the concept. And equally importantly is the fact that states have never fully resolved how to, decide, how to decide when agreements are governed by international law, even as some scholars like Jan Klobbers have long argued that conceptually all international agreements must be governed as such. Looking across uh, the views of states and the views of international courts and tribunals and scholars, um, there appear to be two different camps. I discussed these in some detail in a recent report I performed for the OAS Inter-American Juridical Committee on binding and non-binding agreements, uh, where I was the rapporteur. The first test is the intent test. It favors subjective indicators to discern when an agreement is governed by international law based on the intention of the states or other subjects who make it. In other words, an agreement is a treaty where that reflects the shared intention of its authors. A good example of this approach in practice is in the South China Sea's arbitration, where the tribunal emphasized that, quote, to constitute a binding agreement, an instrument must evince a clear intention to establish rights and obligations between the parties. As such, the tribunal denied China's attempt to qualify certain agreements as treaties based on China's own previous characterizations of these instruments as non-binding texts, even as those texts contains word, contained words such as quote-unquote undertake or quote-unquote agree that in other contexts have been used to identify treaties. In a second camp, contrasted with the intent camp, we find the objective test, relying on objective evidence to identify the existence of a treaty. This involves prioritizing the presence of language usually associated with a binding agreement, verbs like shall and agree, as well as clauses most often, often associated with treaties, such as those on dispute settlement or entry into force. The ICJ's Bahrain v. Qatar case may be the most prominent example of this approach in action. There, the ICJ found that the parties had concluded a legally binding agreement accepting the jurisdiction of the International Court of Justice in the form of agreed minutes, 
notwithstanding the protestations by Bahrain's foreign minister that he had not intended to do so. The court viewed the agreed minutes as a treaty based on, quote, terms of the instrument itself and the circumstances of its conclusion, not from what the parties say afterwards was their intention, end quote. In other words, under the objective approach, the language and types of clauses included in the instrument, and perhaps even its very subject matter, may dictate whether it's a treaty or not. The court's most recent cases, more recent cases such as pulp mills and maritime delimitations in the Indian Ocean, have reinforced the ICJ's objective approach. Outside the ICJ, the Chagos Arbitration Tribunal also endorsed a similar need for quote-unquote objective determination in sorting binding from non-binding agreements. Now, beyond the composite elements of a treaty, the VCLT definition in Article 2 also references questions that were once controversial, such as whether an exchange of notes could ever constitute a treaty, that are no longer open to serious question. Today, treaties can exist in a single instrument or in two or more related instruments, where the second instrument in confirming the first, the two instruments together may constitute the treaty. Similarly, the VCLT definition makes clear that a treaty's existence does not depend on its designation as such. International law has not imposed any requirements of form or formalities on concluding treaties. So in practice, treaties bear many, many different titles, including act, agreed minute, charter, covenant, convention, declaration, memorandum, note verbal, protocol, statute, and of course, treaty. International tribunals have classified instruments as treaties, notwithstanding their be being housed in very different forms. So as I already suggested, in Qatar v. Bahrain, the International Court of Justice assessed and agreed minutes from 1990 um, as a treaty. In Pulp Mills, the court concluded that a press release constituted a binding agreement for the parties. Now, just as VCLT Article 3 tells us to look beyond the treaty definition, to identify the continued possibility of oral treaties and treaty-making capacities of non-state actors, I'd urge us to look beyond VCLT Article 2 to assess several other relevant factors in defining treaties. Let me highlight two here, registration and domestic law. First, registration. The registration of an agreement may have some bearing on treaty status. Recall that UN Charter, UN Charter Article 102, subparagraph 1, requires the registration of, quote, every treaty, end quote, with the UN Secretary General. Does this mean no unregistered treaties can qualify, no unregistered agreements can qualify as a treaty, or that a registered agreement must be a treaty? I think the answer is clearly no on both counts. Neither the UN Charter nor the VCLT explicitly tie treaty registration to an agreement's legal status as a treaty. For its part, the UN has been careful to regularly indicate the that the Secretariat's acceptance of an instrument for registration does not, and I quote, does not confer on the instrument the status of a treaty or an international agreement if it does not already have that status, end quote. Similarly, a failure to register will generally not deny an agreement the status of a treaty. As the ICJ noted in Qatar v. Bahrain, Quote, non-registration or late registration does not have any consequence for the actual validity of the agreement, which remains no less binding 
upon the parties. In short, registration is not a, registration is not a required criterion for defining treaties. Yet, even if it's not determinative, the fact of registration may be indicative of a treaty's existence. The ICJ signaled in the case of Somalia v. Kenya that registration is among the factors it considers in identifying treaties, particularly where the other party did not subsequently object to its registration. And finally, I should emphasize that we should not conflate how member states define treaties for purposes of their domestic law with how international law and practice define the concept. As a matter of domestic law, some states limit the definition or the label treaty to agreements authorized through specific domestic procedures, most often legislative approval. International agreements that do not require or receive legislative approval will not be defined or called treaties within that domestic uh, legal order, uh, but will rather compromise, uh, uh, comprise a discrete category. Many states, for example, will call these executive agreements. Other states, though, those, say, belonging to the Commonwealth, use the term treaty to refer to all their international agreements, even though they don't require any advanced legislative authorization. So the fact that a state reserves a particular set of domestic procedures for an international agreement will not accurately predict its status as a binding treaty under international law. In sum, the foregoing suggests that for international law purposes, a treaty is an international agreement among states or other subjects of international law that is recorded in a way that evidences either a shared and manifest intent or other objective evidence that the agreement be governed by international law and that it, this be without regard as to its form, registration, or domestic law designation. It's quite a complex definition. And at this point, you may ask, why? Why does it matter? Why is it so important to identify what a treaty is and what it is not? The answer, I think, lies in the reality that today states produce lots and lots of texts, only some of which are treaties. And I've already noted how the treaty definition might help us distinguish treaties from unilateral declarations, uh, both of which do create international legal commitments, but through different modalities. At the same time, however, there are other forms of international agreements that are not treaties. At the broadest level, current practice divides between agreements that are binding and thus governed by law, whether that law is international law in the form of treaties or domestic law in the form of contracts, and agreements that are not binding. We call these maybe political commitments for which law provides no normative force. In terms of contracts, just as states can conclude treaties governed by international law, so too can they conclude contracts governed by domestic law, whether the laws of one uh, of the contracting parties or even the election of some third state's law as the governing law of an interstate contract. Political commitments, meanwhile, represent a rapidly rising category of agreement, one where states um, have reach agreement on expectations for future behavior but they don't expect law or international law to in any way guarantee that behavior. They rely instead on moral or, or political suasion to do so. Now, of course, political force can also attach to legal norms. A treaty breach, for example, can generate both legal and political consequences. 
So one of the things that separates treaties from political commitments is that a, that additional application uh, of legal consequences or international law to treaties. States and scholars have recognized legally non-binding agreements for more than a century, albeit under a number of different headers, such as the gendered term gentleman's agreement, uh, informal agreements, de facto agreements, non-binding agreements, political texts, non-legal agreements, and the term I prefer and use here, political commitments. Examples of political commitments include high visibility agreements like the multilateral Helsinki Accords or the bilateral Shanghai Communique, or they may be less visible efforts to construct cooperation, such as the 2013 Memorandum of Understanding between Australia and Papua New Guinea relating to the resettlement of refugees. States do appear to be doing more and more political commitments today, often under the heading of MOU or Memorandum of Understanding. And here, I'd reiterate a point I made earlier, but um, I think it's important to emphasize because one sees this often in practice. Just because an agreement is labeled as an MOU or a Memorandum of Understanding does not mean it must be a political commitment. An agreement's title, again, cannot determine its status. And while some states, like Canada, prefer to use MOU as the title for exclusively political commitments, other states have used that title MOU to govern treaties or to qualify things as treaties governed by international law. In other words, MOUs can still be treaties. Taken together, then, it's important to recognize that as states contemplate making agreements, they have a functional choice to make. Namely, are they going to conclude a binding treaty or a non-binding political commitment? Now, what rationales may help in such decision-making? What are the relative benefits or interests at stake in preferring a political commitment over a treaty or vice versa? For starters, Political commitments may be used when states have some hesitancy about the state or capacity of international law um, uh, to address the subject matter. Political commitments provide a useful avenue where legal agreement's not possible, uh, either because states don't want uh, new legal obligations or perhaps wish to avoid dispute settlement or other potential remedies international law affords in case difficulties arise under the agreement. Similarly, political commitments may be attractive because they can avoid any of the domestic procedural hurdles that I've already described may be associated with at least some forms of treaty making. Um, so, you know, a, a state's domestic legal system may, for example, mandate certain procedures, legislative approval, before a state can conclude a treaty. By and large, though, at present, political commitments rarely have any equivalent procedural requirements. Um, that position is coming under some pressure, uh, as states and scholars have become concerned about political commitments being used as a loophole to escape domestic legal requirements for treaty making. But nonetheless, one of the current features of the political commitment is that it may not have any or at least not the same level of domestic procedural hurdles for its creation. In terms of their own potential, political commitments are often celebrated for their speed and their flexibility. Without the formal procedural requirements of international law, these instruments can be created without having to wait on satisfying the burdens of consent or to wait for entry into a force to occur, uh, topics we'll address in my third lecture. Similarly, political commitments are regarded as more flexible than treaties. They can be renegotiated or modified with greater ease, if not at will. 
Indeed, since they don't give rise to legal rights or obligations, uh, a state can exit its political commitment without triggering any legal liabilities. That said, withdrawal from a political commitment can still have political consequences, as witnessed, for example, when the United States decided to withdraw from the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action involving Iran's nuclear power program. Finally, political commitments are attractive in multi-stakeholder contexts. Since political commitments are not governed by international law, none of international law's limitations on treaty-making capacities to international law subjects, none of those limitations apply. So states interested in forging agreements with non-state actors, like firms or civil society organizations, can do so via political commitments, even though, as we'll see, such entities lack treaty-making capacities. For a recent example, see the thousand-plus signatories to the Paris Call for Trust and Security in Cyberspace, which includes dozens of states, hundreds of firms, academic institutions, and various representatives of civil society. That said, let's not get carried away about the utility of the political commitment. Using a political commitment does have certain trade-offs when it comes to its competitor or companion, the treaty. For starters, political commitments don't create any legal rights or obligations. They cannot usually be cited as a source of regulation in adjudication or other fora. Treaties, in contrast, as we've discussed, bind parties under Pacta Sunt Servanda. Moreover, beyond the actual obligation to what the treaty says, by the mere existence of a treaty, there is brought in what we might call secondary legal effects. The existence of a treaty will trigger the application of other rules or legal regimes, including, most notably, the law of treaties itself, but also the law of state responsibility and any other specific regimes tied to a treaty's particular subject matter, whether it be in the area of environment or trade or human rights. Similarly, a political commitment will usually not have any possibility for binding dispute settlement by international courts or tribunals, the way some treaties do. Nor can a political commitment breach generate legal sanctions the way a treaty breach might, uh, either under the terms of the treaty or the invocation of countermeasures under the rules on state responsibility. The fact that political commitments are done without much domestic involvement means they may not also enjoy much significant domestic review begging questions about how seriously they were vetted before their conclusion, and indeed whether there is, there is sufficient domestic um, support necessary to ensure conformity with whatever the political commitment anticipates occurring. And moreover, although it's going to vary depending on the domestic law of states concerned, treaties often do have a possibility of domestic legal effect, right? Even, um, you know, that it may vary by state. Political commitments, in contrast, um, have categorically no domestic legal effects. Um, um, indeed, treaties, as we'll discuss in my fifth lecture, actually may even in some states have the status of a constitution, or at least the status of domestic statutes. So treaties and political commitments are in some ways as significant on the international plane as they may be also on the domestic plane. So in some treaties, as a result, I think, are usually and widely regarded as more credible forms of commitment than political commitments. So my point here is that states can and should weigh the reasons they seek to make an international agreement and what they expect it to do as they assess whether to pursue a treaty or a political commitment 
or something else, like a unilateral declaration or some form of interstate contract. Such variety gives states multiple opportunities to tailor their agreements to particular contexts, to adjust to the need for speed or flexibility, to adjust for the need for particular remedies, for example. That said, there is a downside to having different types of binding and non-binding agreements, the risk of confusion or even disputes over their status. Two states may conclude an international agreement that one regards as a non-binding political commitment and that the other regards as a treaty. This was the case, for example, in the 1980s, when the United States assumed a number of defense information sharing MOUs, concluded with the United Kingdom, Canada, and Australia, uh, and the U.S. view was that these were treaties, while those other states had the view that they were political commitments. And this created a domestic legal problem for the United States, since under its internal law, the sharing of the defense information in question covered by these agreements was required to be encapsulated in a binding agreement. And so as a result, the United States and these other countries had to go back to the negotiation uh, table, a negotiating table, and devise a chapeau binding treaty to cover the operation of these MOUs. Um, now, how can states and others determine whether any particular text will be or already is a treaty or whether it is or will be a political commitment? I think there are two steps involved. First, finding an agreement, and second, determining whether it's binding or not. If it's binding, there may be this additional third inquiry as to whether it's binding under international law or domestic law, but I think usually states need to affirmatively identify domestic law to create a contract. In other words, you know, um, binding um, interstate agreements will be considered treaties by default. So I'm, I'm going to leave it as a two-stage process for now. Is there an agreement, and is it binding or not? In terms of that first step, there must be a discernible agreement. Right? In some cases, the participants may help us by making it easy, jointly conceding the agreement's existence. So in the Iron Rhine Railway arbitration, for example, both Belgium and the Netherlands acknowledged that they had reached an agreement in a memorandum of understanding and that that MOU was not a binding instrument. Otherwise, international lawyers may follow the ICJ's lead from the Aegean Sea case and examine any proposed or existing agreement in terms of, quote, regard above all to its actual terms and to the particular circumstances in which it was drawn up, end quote. We can look to these, you know, for those conditions of mutuality and commitment I've already identified. Where the text and the surrounding circumstances are ambiguous, international lawyers would do well to encourage negotiations, or at least negotiating states, to confer and convey to each other their respective understandings as to whether or not they're working on an agreement or an agreement will result from the negotiations. But once we have an agreement, we need some method or methods for differentiating which ones are treaties and which ones are political commitments and which ones are contracts. As I've discussed, these methods may differ depending on whether we adopt an intent test or an objective test. In many cases, the two, case, the, in many cases, the two tests will lead to the same result. Both look to the same three sources of evidence. They look to text, they look to surrounding circumstances, and they look to subsequent practice to identify different types of binding and non-binding agreements. But different results are possible, particularly where the text objectively favors one conclusion, say a treaty, but external evidence suggests another, as when contemporaneous statements by participants suggest a treaty was not, in fact, intended. The objective test would prioritize the text and language used in contrast to the intent text, 
test, which would emphasize what the parties intended, that can obviously create confusion or even conflicts. Certain practices can mitigate such risks. Um, for starters, the legal status of an international agreement can be addressed in the text itself. The parties or participants may expressly indicate whether the instrument is a treaty or it is a political commitment or a contract or something else. Similarly, they may seek to align the subjective and objective evidence to point towards the same outcome. In some cases, the title may alone be uh, helpful as a sufficient specification as to what was intended uh, and what is manifest. So I'll quote here, for example, the non-legally binding authoritative statement of principles for a global consensus on the management, conservation, and sustainable development of all types of forests. One of the lengthier, but perhaps more descriptive titles uh, in international agreement practice to date. Or the specification may come via clause that rejects the treaty label. In 2010, for example, the Republic of Moldova and the U.S. state of North Carolina concluded a memorandum of, memorandum of principles and procedures. Um, paragraph A of that read, quote, This memorandum does not create any obligations that constitute a legally binding agreement under international law, end quote. In other cases, participants specify the political character of their commitment um, by, perhaps most famously, the Helsinki Accords specifying that it would not, quote-unquote, be eligible for registration under Article 102 of the UN Charter. Now, where the agreement's been already concluded, state practice has developed a set of linguistic markers that are associated with non-binding agreements and other linguistic markers that are associated with treaties. So in contrast to language of commitment like shall, political commitments often contain the more precatory should. Other words and clauses are employed to signal non-binding intent. For example, instead of treaty parties, political commitments often refer to participants. Instead of articles, political commitments may reference paragraphs. Similar diversity exists in the final clauses of commitments, uh, with treaties referencing entry into force and political commitments referencing an entry into effect. It is important, critical, I believe, though, to emphasize that there are no magic words that guarantee an agreement the status of either a treaty or a political commitment. Those who favor the intent test will emphasize a holistic approach, where all manifestations of the party's intentions must be considered, rather than allowing one word or phrase to dictate the result. And even objective test adherents recognize that clever drafters can turn otherwise imperative language into precatory form. It matters, for example, whether a verb like agree stands alone or is preferenced or prefaced by language such as intend to agree or hope to agree. At the same time, the effort to identify and differentiate binding and non-binding agreements is not limited to their text. I'd urge you, whether you're an adherent to the intentional or objective approaches to look to external evidence, be it the surrounding circumstances at the time of the agreement's conclusion or the party's subsequent practice as aids to identifying treaties and political commitments. In sum, we've seen in this discussion the fundamental question of where a treaty lies. Is it in the meeting of the minds or in the instrument they create? That issue is not resolved by the VCLT, even as it offers us a series of ingredients that combine to form a treaty. Ingredients that customary law and practice have adjusted to allow for more forms, including oral treaties, and more actors, including other subjects of international law. 
We've discussed the competing subjective and objective tests for identifying a treaty and the various alternative agreements states may make, most notably political commitments. We walked through some of the functional rationales for why states might prefer political commitments over treaties or treaties over political commitments. And we've explored different ways to differentiate these forms of agreement, both in their formation and the evidence we may use later to assess an agreement's legal status or lack thereof. Now, in my next lecture, I'll elaborate on the relevant treaty-making capacities of states, international organizations, and non-governmental organizations, as well as the processes by which treaties form, including issues of consent, entry into force, and provisional application. I hope you'll keep watching, and thanks for listening.